So I had this uh, interesting dream last night. So let's preface this by saying that, you know, not only am I working on the project that I have been working on and talking about forever, but so I let's just say also, still, still, and <laughs> will will be till the early days of 2026. And, uh-huh. and so and then now I have a, a new project that I'm working on and it is another enormous project. And there's, it's an international project. And because there's so many constraints, like, you know, there's, there's reports to write every week. There's all sorts of things that are just, you know, kind of above and beyond like the normal paperwork shuffle that you've got to do for, you know, project management and project controls and things like that. It seems a little daunting and it's getting me way, way out of my comfort zone, which, you know, it's welcome, I guess. However, I was having this dream where I was in a, funny enough, I was in a mid-century home in the middle of the woods and watching bears off in the distance and stuff. And then I open up the front door and a little baby bear walks through the front door. And I'm like, what, what's going on with this baby bear? And then I turn around and I see this massive mama bear just charging towards me. And then I immediately wake up. I'm like, does this like the, I mean, I was, I was thinking the only thing that I could think of that kind of would have prompted this kind of dream or whatever was like, I went to bed with a little bit of anxiety because I was up late yesterday, Friday night, kind of working on downloading uh, some information and, and reading through the design briefs and things like that. And just trying to get myself up to speed on, on everything and making sure that I understand like all of the different responsibilities that we as the design architect has to do f- for this project. And so like, you know, lots of anxiety, lots of just like, you know, Oh my, this is like a lot of stuff. And I'm assuming that this big, massive, huge mama bear running towards me is that project it's your new project <laughs> <laughs> and, and my old project which is i won't say you know kind of on cruise control it's it's out to bid and it will be you know it'll, it'll be our projects ever on cruise control <laughs> no no sure. but i mean but I you mean, know there's like the five levels of autonomous driving yeah we can't even get to level one people <laughs> exactly <laughs> we can't so, even but, get to cruise control <laughs> but i kind of felt like the the baby bear was like that project running past me and uh, Mama Bear was the big project running towards me. Yeah. About to maul the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And you just like turn and face it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's all you have to do is just like bring it. Yeah. You don't even you don't even have time to think. What are you supposed to do when a bear shows up? <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't even stay stay around in the dream long enough to know figure out right. whether or not I did. I shut the door. Did I pretend it's not coming, or did I? You know, I just left it open and let it charge on right. it. Right. Right. Yep. It's inevitable. Which is the which mama is, bear is going to get what she wants. Exactly. <laughs> which is sort of how you that have to man. approach these projects, right? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> oh man. I was I was listening to this uh, climbing podcast, and one of the hosts of it said something really interesting, and so I wanted to take that and apply it to the architectural profession. So I was wondering, I have a question for you, which is, you know, when when new talent walks in the door of 
of your office, let's just say. Mm-hmm. What's the typical kind of I don't want to I don't want to get into like onboarding in HR, but you know, like assimilation into the profession, like what's their experience like and how much freedom are they allowed to bring ideas to the table versus the the typical way of bringing somebody into the profession as a you know, the mentor mentee, you know, the watch as I do and then and then we'll we'll do it together and then you're doing it up by yourself or you know the apprenticeship model or you know you know what I mean like architecture's always had kind of this apprenticeship model right you know idealized right I, I want to doesn't always happen obviously um I think it it's a generational thing it's a there's there's a lot of factors playing into that it's a COVID thing for sure nowadays but but right. you know if you think back into the quote unquote grand old days of architecture where, you know, the golden age of Frank Lloyd Wright and I mean there Taliesin was basically developing apprentices in the right style, right? And right. and so I'm I'm just wondering how you see that. Cause once we kind of talk through this, then I want to bring up bring it back to that podcast uh quote that I heard and see what you think about it. So I can only answer it, you know, in really two ways. One, the way that I was mentored, and I'm using loose air quotes there, and then how I do it. And how I do it is typically different than how I've seen the norm of like how I was brought in and onboarded. I mean, because literally the day that I graduated school, you know, moved back to Florida from Auburn, and we basically within, I don't know, like five days of moving back, I was in the office working and they never stopped to ask me, okay, what skill set do you have? I mean, mm. they looked at my resume, we, we had our interview and they sort of knew what I've done before. And funny enough, one of the guys that I was in my interview, I had worked for and interned with before. And so they knew what I could do and what I couldn't do. And so they basically just threw me in all right, you know, we've got a presentation that we're working on and we literally stayed till 2 a.m. my very first day of the job. And Welcome to the profession. You'll sit exactly. here. <laughs> exactly. And you'll and, never get up. And, and yes, what I was doing was within my wheelhouse of knowledge at the time. I had interned enough. In fact, I and I interned for like two straight years, actually four, almost four straight years, really, in, in a firm when I kind of like took my hiatus from school. And so I actually had quite a bit of like construction documentation process, you know, process. I've worked on presentations and stuff. I've done illustrations, you know, and, and everything that they were basically asking me to do, I was I was fine with basically picking that up and running with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good thing was is that they were there with us they didn't just say all right i'm going home for the night you guys just you know finish this up and when we come in at 9 a.m it should be done no they they everybody it was a small enough firm five people that everybody you know those two principals all hands on deck they, it they was had all that mentality yeah they did and and that was great about it and and i have sort of always kept that portion that that kind of like understanding that if I'm going to ask somebody else to do it, I want them to do it as well. Yeah, we're in this together kind of a... Yeah, totally. Absolutely. We've talked about that before, for sure. 
but but that's not always the case. And no. and I've seen so many times through the few different firms that I've worked for in my career that basically they just kind of like throw you in the deep end. No one ever actually likes after the initial, you know, like, hi, this is Cormac. Um, he'll be sitting here and he's going to be working on these projects. Uh, other than that, they don't ask you, all right, you know, what's your level of experience? What can you do? What don't you know how to do? Hey, we're going to be asking you to do this stuff right here. Is, is this something that you feel comfortable with? They don't really care, nor I don't know if it's they don't really care. It's they don't have the time because, as we know, time is money in architecture, and we are just trying to crank things out so that we can get to the next billable, you know, submission of whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah, next project. And no next one, project, next no project. one, no one ever really takes the time to say, "Hey, new person, what do you know? What don't you know? What is your level of experience? What's your level of comfort? What do you want to do um, with your life? You know, what what do you want to do? I mean." I, I know that you're just getting into all of this stuff. Either, you know, you're a fresh graduate or you're just a, a new employee with experience or something. But, you know, a lot of times people either come to a firm green and they don't really know what to expect in the profession. Or when they're coming from somewhere else where they've got a level of experience, they want they're they're looking for a change. They left the old place to come to the new place because they're looking for a change. They're looking for something different. And no one really figures out what that is. They just kind of let them go with it and just, you know, like, all right, I'm going to throw you in the deep end. So we always tend to throw everybody into the deep end. I personally try to do it a little bit differently when we bring people in. And and, and I, I will admit this, that it's not always been the case. A lot of times, like in the middle of a project and I'm like, you know, so like um, look, this particular project that I, that I, you know, just that is now the baby bear running through this, that particular project. I had a couple of project architects that had left the firm, went to a different job. And so we had to replace them with other, you know, kind of like senior experienced, you know, project architects. One of them, I didn't know. She was fantastic, probably does her job a hell of a lot better than I do. And we onboarded her as fast as possible. I you know, took them on a, on a walking tour of the project site. And then we just kind of like threw them in the deep end because unfortunately at that point in time, it was when COVID was starting, when lockdowns were happening. And, you know, I, I we didn't have that kind of like face-to-face interaction that we would normally have. I mean, almost from that point on, but that's kind of not the norm. The norm is usually, okay, all right, what's in your, what do you want to get out of this project? I always ask that question. What do you want to learn? What do you want to get out of this? At the end of the day, this, you know, this, this, your job is what you make of it, but what can I do to help facilitate making that better for you? And that is a rare question that a lot of people never ask. Mm -hmm. I think the reason that that doesn't get asked is because everybody thinks that they're on the same path, just you're just further behind than I am kind of a, you know, to make it yeah, first person. No. Um, I think that happens, you know, we've talked about that as well on the show. It's, it's very much like people work, you work for a supervisor who thinks that they should, that you should be just like them, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're mentoring you because they have to, because they're your supervisor or they're supervising you to, 
take over their position someday, most likely, right? It yeah. and it, and that yeah. is a very long, probably someday away, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. right. And, and the reason I I guess I bring this up is because, like you're saying, there's that those questions don't get asked. There's just assumptions made. Typically, I mean, we're totally generalizing here, and this is big. You know, if you take averages across the profession, I would very much say that that's how it is. And that's what made me connect these two dots between our profession and rock climbing. Because you think about the the particular story being told, and it's it's on a great new podcast. If anybody out there is into podcasting and rock climbing together, it's by Alex Honnold, who's the free solo guy, if you don't know who that is it's him and another guy and and they're telling these really great stories and in i think it's episode two right that they're they just started this thing up and they're talking about uh this couple who basically developed a whole area and it's right outside of las vegas called red rocks and at the time i mean we're talking about the 70s so long time ago it was it was not a climbing area before that and and there was a lot of Believe it or not, there's a lot of elitism and snobbishness in rock climbing at the time. And it's because there is a sense of duty to protect the rock, right? And so many, many philosophies were born during that time, just like architecture. There are philosophies. There's these kind of apprenticeship models in rock climbing as well. Like you study under what were called the stone masters, and they would teach you the ways and that's how rock climbing knowledge is passed down like you climb with somebody better than you they teach you what you what they know so that you know how to do it right so that you don't kill yourself right right? (laughs) and other people so it was very interesting the the new approach that this couple brought to developing an area and so there's this whole kind of segment of of climbing where people put up what's called a first descent, right? It's developing routes on walls that have never been climbed before. And there's multiple ways to do that. Depends on the, the quality of the rock and the access and all kinds of stuff. And so for, you know, if, if you go to a rock climbing place, you'll see bolts in some places. And then you'll go to other places where you will not see bolts. And a bolt is a, a permanently embedded piece of hardware into the rock. And some people consider that very bad right if you go to yosemite you will see very few bolts and this is a very kind of elitist california mentality when it came to rock climbing especially as that area was being developed like we don't put bolts here and there are some and where they usually are is where there is no other way to protect yourself and so it kind of quote unquote has to be there and then there's other places where there's just bolts everywhere right so there's two extremes to that and obviously there is a lot of rock climbing out there where you don't have to use bolts at all because there's features in the rock in, inside which you can place temporary protection. So the person going up the climb first places it in, the person following them takes it out, leave no trace. Right. Um, so they're developing red rocks outside of Vegas. You know, it's about 20 miles mm-hmm. north of Vegas Strip, and it's like another planet. It's like being on Mars. It's unbelievably beautiful. It's total contrast to Las Vegas. And in the in the story, she basically presents this as, you know, it was a it was a pile of rubble. Like nobody wanted to go there. So they're like, we'll take this pile of rubble. <laughs> this is our pile of rubble. And developed it. And now they've the work that they did over a couple of decades out there became world class climbing at some point. Mm. But I thought what was really interesting when 
they talked about they were innovators in the way that they developed routes. And so when you think about architecture, there have been innovators, right? And typically the innovators end up doing amazing projects that really do garner attention, you know, kind of like what, you know, these really classic routes that we see on rock Mm -hmm. climbs. So the Guggenheim, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, obvious innovator. Zaha, obvious innovator. You know, it's like you can point at, you know it when you see it, right? And a lot of times it takes a history of amazing projects in a line to create that lore about that designer or or whatever, however you want to say it. But there's definitely kind of these innovators. And it made me just think about how hard they had to go against the grain. Because what we're talking about is assimilation into a profession where you are basically expected to be just like the person you work for. And I can't imagine Zaha ever being like that. I can't imagine Eisenman ever being like that. I can't imagine, you know, you name them, you know who we're talking about here, mm-hmm. right? Ever being like that, and and the the quote that was said was, and this is a par- a paraphrase because I I couldn't take it down fast enough, and I haven't gone back to review it. But basically, if you demand other people to have the same experience as you, then you are on the wrong side of history. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many arguments about the right way to do this, right, right, and honestly that quote made me think and obviously not everybody agrees with that (laughs) and there is knowledge that does need to be passed from person to person but for how long because you know you go in to work for a large firm and it's you can usually tell what somebody's talents are and how how far they're going to go and how far they could go let's say you can see how far they're going they could go in your office or your firm, but also in the profession. And those two things aren't necessarily the same, right? Right, right. Um, and I think a lot of expectations, or let's say roadblocks, are actually just put in the way to make it so that it takes a certain amount of time for you to get there, which I think is absolutely crazy. Because yeah. not everybody yeah. is the same. And so, yeah, if you were to take an average, there is an average amount of time that it takes. But there are some peak performers that don't want to travel at that speed limit right and so that's where this quote comes back in right if you demand other people have the same experience than you then you're on the wrong side of history Mm -hmm. it's like you're you're saying nope (laughs) you go in you get that review and it's like what do i need to do to get the next level just keep doing what you're doing it's like well what does that mean Right. What what can I actually do to get to the next level? Because obviously I perform, I'm I'm doing what you've asked, I'm I'm passing the test with flying colors, and yet I feel stuck here. And it's it just made me really think that our profession is has very much been stifled because of that mentality of like, nope, it takes this long and matriculation is a your whole career and you don't you can't even get comfortable until you're in your 50s or 60s <laughs> you, well, know? you know <laughs> i mean it's very similar to like our slow adoption of not the new technologies i mean we've been we've adopted bim and things like that that dude, really dude, just so you know on the other day i saw a post on linkedin that said asking for a friend autocad or revit <laughs> Jeez, yeah so 
so okay so that that's the that's i guess really the point that i was trying to make is that here we are we seem to always be slow adopters and it i don't necessarily think it's we're slow adopters because we're afraid of the technology or things like that we're just slow adopters because we're afraid of the change that comes with adopting all of this new technology and stuff and it's the same way as we approach talent that you know it's like low slow down stay in your lane you know you've got to pay your dues i paid my dues you got to pay your dues totally. but sometimes there I are took people the, who, i took nine tests how many did you take yeah, exactly <laughs> you know, it's like oh you're only taking six well you know you're only a you know a third better than i am or less you know or oh, whatever yeah. lesser <laughs> than i am and and and, and so you I, I I guess the, you know, we're so afraid of change and we've talked about this on, you know, so many different occasions that we're so afraid to change that when you see like these innovators come in and they're kind of like blazing their trail and stuff, a lot of times you're either very, you know, like apprehensive of it or you're, you know, you automatically say, oh, they're, they're not doing the right thing. You know, they, they should be, you know, following this path and doing their, their own thing. Well, we're never going to change as a profession. We're never going to grow as a profession. We're never going to get out of this rut, which seems to kind of hold many innovators behind. You know, we've talked about how, like, we let other people innovate for us on our technology side of things because we're just, you know, we we take a back seat to so many things in this profession that, you know, we got to kind of, we take what we get kind of thing rather than lead and get what we want. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, you're you're right on. I I think it's uh, I think there is a fear there that they see a a real go getter, and it's immediate fear of obsolescence. Kind of. Oh yeah. Starts absolutely. tickling your <laughs> the, yeah. the most ancient prehistoric parts of your brain that are still there. Right. You it, go the, you go primal. It's like oh crap, Evan's going to replace me. <laughs> yeah, and that might not that might be a total subconscious thought. Uh, it might not even be a thought at all. It just is. It's there. And 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 there, when you said blazing the trails, like that, that's exactly what this couple were doing. Was they they came up with really innovative new ways to develop routes, which were severely looked down upon by the establishment. <laughs> and the establishment was like the stone masters that I'm talking about, right? Like these people yeah. who were held in the highest regard, the ones who developed Yosemite National Park as a climbing area, right? Who went up these 3,000 foot climbs, you know, before anybody thought that was ever possible and developed mm -hmm. these philosophies. And so it was very much looked down upon the way that they were developing routes, which they never really get into in the episode. But I mean, it, it, to me, it had to be about placing bolts and things like that, <laughs> which, you, you, you know, I, I understand where you're coming from, but you also have to be like, they were also calling the location that they were doing this in a, a trash pile. Right. So it, very interesting kind of double standard there. I felt like it wasn't like they were going into Yosemite and doing it. Where the where the the practice would have they would have been run out of the park the first time they saw it, the temple. Yeah, the temple exactly. So <laughs> I I think it's it's very interesting. You know, they were basically saying, no, we've established the rules. You have to follow them forever, right? The, the rules can never change. 
and right. and I and I honestly feel like there is a lot of that in very small ways, but it all adds up inside of of our profession, and it really has hindered the progress that that the potential that could be there mm-hmm. for us to innovate and and move forward together. And and also, you know, because we are bred so competitively, starting in school and then going after projects and competing against other firms and lowering our fees and yeah, uh, all of that exacerbates the issue of competition, right? And so that competitive nature gets very much like firm against firm and team against team. You'll even see teams inside of a firm competing uh, for design ideas on projects, right? To see which team right. gets the project. Um, or, or, or all in all in good fun, they'll say. But they'll but it's yeah. you know it's, it is kind of a, a fight or flight kind of a mentality. It's like no, we got to feed ourselves, right? We're going to be the ones who win this. And and so I, I do feel like that often gets in the way of the bigger picture of of progress. And that's kind of why we're, I feel like the the profession has been stuck for so long in or or let's just say it just really draws things out it makes things take a lot longer for that change to happen Mm. yeah but you know typically we're being led by other people who've made that change because we're still so too busy infighting as you kind of highlighted to yeah you mean people outside of the profession yeah yeah like technology for instance yeah yeah agreed I, i don't know what to do about it other than bring it out into conversation and and bring that to light because I think it's one of those things where it's like yep it's happening but we don't talk about it because we don't think enough about it and so let's just put it out in the open and and have these conversations because these are the kinds of things that large organizations that do bind us together can facilitate and it doesn't yeah. mean that there's an answer it just means like we should probably get this out in the open and air it out and and it's not like that's not happening. The internet makes it very possible for that to happen. And it's happening in little pockets all over the place, for sure. It's happening on podcasts like this, right? It's happening on Slack channels. It's happening on forums. It's happening all over social media, Twitter. But it's not happening at the the biggest, most important places. You saw how long it took to get diversity, equity, and, and inclusion into the AIA charter. Like, seriously? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's at the the organization that supposedly binds us all together. It binds the ninety five thousand members together in some way with those initials after their name and with the mm-hmm. the services that they provide and things like that. But it doesn't feel like we're all in this together. And I I do I do sense that those are the most important places for the. I, I mean I remember when Rosa announced that that was going into the charter, and it was so exciting, right? For so right. many people, I'm sure it was not exciting at all for some people, right? But right. at the same time, it's like, that's a huge deal. And so how can we capitalize on that momentum and really, like, that? They're just, I, I guess it takes a lot of input. It takes a lot of participation. It takes a lot of contribution. Um, it's a lot we of work. Just, yeah, we just got to keep asking ourselves, what do we want out of this profession? What do we want to, you know... This is Does your it deserve to you exist <laughs> in the future, right? Yeah. How are we going to be relevant in the future? Yeah, totally agree. Because uh, what are we doing to attract new talent to this profession? Like, it's it doesn't just deserve to exist because it's always existed, as far as people can remember, right? Right. I call it the oldest profession, right? But it's like 
doesn't deserve to exist just because it has. Like you, you have to mm-hmm. give people a reason to want to show up. I mean, you know, you look at all of these like com- corporations that you thought were going to be around forever. You have Sears and who, you know all these other types of yeah. companies that are now There's gone. Three giant boxes at this indoor mall that was built in the '80s here, <laughs> exactly, the, and they're gone. They're empty. They're shells because they didn't know how to adapt, overcome, and you know change. And they just, they became dinosaurs. And in some very, very similar fashions, there are, there is plenty of thinking within the architectural profession that is dinosaurs that we all, you know, that the people who do want to see the change are hoping, dare I say, die off so that they can just, so that we can move on. But, you know, they're just not dying off fast, that the thinking isn't dying off fast enough for real change to happen. We never sit back and ask that question is just like, what do we want out of this profession and how are we going to be the ones to lead and take control of it instead of what we're doing now, which is, oh, okay, well, I've got to do this job. You know, what tools out there that somebody else did is going to best help facilitate? It may not be the best. It might not be exactly what I want, but it's close enough and I'm not going to go through the effort of finding exactly what I want or creating what I really want. I'm going to just let somebody else do it. And we've done that so long that, you know, that's what's kind of getting, you know, that's what's kind of contributing to our, you know, some thinking in a, in the profession that mm-hmm. should be obsolete. Yeah, I'll just finish off with this. I guess it was a tweet that I saw. It was something like showing the, what are the top things that kids say they want to be one day as a career? Mm-hmm. And it was a poll and, and like that, the top one was YouTube streamer or something like that, right? Or a Twitch streamer or something. And it was very similar kind of out, outcomes down the line. And it was like the the poster of this was like, back in my day, it was astronaut. What's wrong with <laughs> kids, right? Right. And And I think like that is wrong thinking. Like, okay, first of all, how many astronauts are there that end up going to these other places? what can, you can count it on like four hands i don't know it's not very many <laughs> right? right it, it just right. isn't so how many millions of kids when i was in school wanted to be astronauts a lot how many of them became astronauts i don't know one zero right 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 okay the internet enabled youtube like i would have we never saw that coming. We never saw that as an option. So it's still not even a real quote unquote career for us. But there's people making millions of dollars a year on YouTube. And I'm sorry, do you think that that's not legitimate? Because it totally is, right? It yeah, has absolutely. enabled new careers to happen. Esports, right? What? That's not real sports. You can't play video games against, you know, that. Sorry, you can, right? Like the, my kids say, you know, I want to do this or that. And it's, n- it wasn't even on the list when I was a kid. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And, and it's like, that's amazing. I think that's amazing. I think it's like, well, yeah, you should, if that's what you're into, you should try to do that because I don't know what that is like. And there's not, I don't think there's enough of that kind of thinking out there. It's like, no, you should be a doctor or a lawyer or an architect, or you should be a professional. You should be an accountant. Like you should go into finance. You should 
The one right. is the thing that makes you the most money, not the thing that makes the you the happiest. Career. <laughs> right. <laughs> you which should is, be miserable just funny. like me. <laughs> which is funny because people, you know, people who have successfully monetized YouTube are making hand over fist a hell of a lot more money than we are. Yeah. Doing what and they but, loved. But but that's not a respectable career. Right. Because <laughs> like look at Mr. Beast, this guy he basically a, a YouTube philanthropist who's in his twenties. At least right. that's when he, he was when he started it. And he's got 56 million. He's got an audience of 56 million people. I'm sorry, astronaut? What? Like, yeah, exactly. No. He's reached for the stars and, and achieved them. Yes. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. <laughs> and, and so it's like you have to stop thinking that your path is the path or the only path for the, the, the career that you've decided. It, it's your path. Exactly. It's not every, anybody else's path. Right. right, right, yeah. It's a it's a interesting topic, and I I I think that it needs to be something that's more brought to the surface, so that this profession can get out of its own way mm-hmm. and Agreed. and get somewhere. Turn the sprinklers on Barefoot in the driveway 
they sue me. I'm a piece of creation. I'm gonna shake my mama. 